We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the Big Blue Banter podcast here. Happy to report for the second time the Giants have won a consecutive game, actually for the first time since the 2016 season. I know some people want them to lose every game at this point. And while, you know, I can't argue that they'll get better draft draft capital from winning these games, I can argue that they won't turn into a locker room similar to the Jets if they go on a little bit of a mini run or if they just start to find some confidence within the offensive scheme they're trying to run and then within the defensive scheme and on special teams. And eventually, you know, that turns into wins. And that, to me, can't be a bad thing for a franchise. I get it. You know, if there is an Andrew Luck in this draft, and if Justin Herbert turns out to be that Andrew Luck, sure, the Giants would have been better off going one and fifteen on the season. But you know, that's just not how things work out. You know, the, you know, it worked out that one season for the for the Indianapolis Colts, and it's happened a couple times. But again, it's not something you can really ask these guys to do because for, for a lot of reasons, they're getting paid to play. They want to have some confidence and some you know pride in their work, and they want to put together a decent show for the fans who are attending these home games. And who can actually cheer for a team that scored 38 points and has now scored, you know, 65 points since coming out of the bye week. And we're starting to finally see a little bit of what we thought we might see from this Pat Shermer offense. Uh, that's where I'm at right now. Nick, how are you doing today on this Tuesday evening? Tuesday evening, doing well. Beer in hand. We're a little later in the day. We're a little earlier in the week. Uh, so going to the podcast from that angle and uh, psyched to be here. And um, yeah, psyched to see some. Some some plays down the field, some explosive plays, uh, some good stuff in, on the tape there, and it was it was fun, it was a good game. Yeah, no doubt. And of course, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I mean, the Buccaneers had the 30th ranked run defense according to Pro Football Focus, and their pass coverage is similarly bad. So you know, it's not you know go nuts right now, but at the same time, this is like I said, a little bit of what we expected to see from the Shermer offense. We're about to dive all all into it now, but. 
we were hoping to, like Nick said, get this done a little bit earlier in the week on Tuesday so you guys can have it for before Thanksgiving. I know a lot of people will be traveling for Thanksgiving. So it's everyone who's doing that. Uh, obviously, wish you guys uh, good luck, safe travels, all that good stuff. So let's dive right into it with the hot topic of the week. Saquon Barkley, rookie running back, number two overall draft pick. Career day from a rushing standpoint, 142 yards. Career day from a rushing attempt standpoint, 27. Previously had 20 in the week before against the 49ers. Also a career high. During the week, Barkley credited you know, his improvement in the run game to what he called pacing through the mesh. And that means getting to the line of scrimmage faster. Nick, what did you see from Barkley? Did you see what he's describing, what, you know, what led to this improvement uh, in the run game from Saquon Barkley. Yeah, he definitely looked a lot more um, <clears throat> decisive uh, and, and very kind of quick hitting at times. But then when you kind of look at the tape, it was interesting. It was, I don't think it was necessarily the, the speed maybe by which, but the, the duration that he spent on the play side of runs. And so if we just kind of look into kind of what we mean by that, if you look at like, the predominant number of ins- of, ru- of runs this week again, like it'll always be for this for this year, it was inside zone. And what was interesting to see was not necessarily a t- like a, a, a faster pace to get to the line of scrimmage, but more steps, and in some cases maybe just one or two, like hardly like a fraction of a second, staying on the play side of the play before breaking back to the back side of the play. And uh, my piece this week for CoverOne.net, there was actually a great example of that on his 26-yard run in the third quarter, I believe, uh, where he, it was a big chunk play that by him staying on, if if the designs, if the run is designed to go to the left, by him staying on the left side and reading his keys from left to right then, and staying just in that mode for a lot, a little bit longer, it allows those second level blocks to get there. It allows the angle when he goes to the second level, to the second tier to be better uh, for him to, to then explode up. So it's basically like a kind of a crease run versus a hitting the hole type run. And it's, it's kind of funky and it's not something where, you know, Barkley's got tremendous instincts. You don't really want to take away from those, but you want to maximize his ability to, to, um, to basically stay within play structure and make play structure as good as possible. Because if that's the case, you're going to have more consistent four to nine yard runs. And actually the guy who made a great point about it was great Cosell. He was, he was watching the tape and, and on another podcast was basically like he couldn't believe the ease at which uh, Barkley made seven to eight yard runs. It made it look like it was just kind of what he does all the time, where for normal human beings, it was not easy. And so he ran tight very well. He was able to basically, uh, you know, it was really his best game by far. And so that's what I saw. So what for him, if that was the pacing by which he was taking the mesh and then going there, I think it translated into kind of sticking with instructor for longer. Yeah, and while I obviously love and pretty much take as gospel anything Greg Gosell says, uh, NFL films, films guru, this guy sees the game from a really good standpoint, I think. Uh, so check out his work, and he's saying that, you know, it means a lot. But I, I kind of see it as well. I thought this was actually, you know, for all the credit that the offensive line has been getting for this game, I do think this was Barkley's best game by far. And what Greg Gosell said and what you just said, Nick, it, it's really true. I mean, he pretty much showed that he can be any kind of runner with this game. The big criticism on Barkley from his tape at Penn State, from some of the early season tape, was obviously that, you know, he likes to bounce runs outside. He tries to, to get the edge a lot. And, you know, one game they ask him to do something different, and you see a noticeable difference. And like like Cosell said, he really seems to be good at this style as well. It's not like something completely brand new to him. And I found that to be really interesting. Nick, how did you, you know, 
is that is that something you think can carry over to the to future games, or is this kind of just going to be okay? Well, they played a Buccaneers run defense that ranks 30th. They didn't have Levante David on the field due to injury. So where do you kind of see that as it moves forward? Yeah, I definitely think it's just it's it's further in the development. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote in a chat room that it's it's kind of it's 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 part of his development from going from good to great. We know he's a very good rookie, right? Or we knew that two to three weeks ago. We knew at the beginning of the season. You knew it kind of when you drafted him. But can he get to where many think he will get to, which is really one of the best running backs, you know, at least of this of this grouping, you know, the last three to five years, and and a different type of back than. You know, I think he should be treated a little bit more like Kamara, but he showed that if you flash him the upper 30 targets, you know, per game, that he can handle it that way. Um, and from a from a pretty basic set or, or standpoint from where he's uh, formation-wise, you know, he's really just running and then basically coming out of the backfield and passes. I think it should be more dynamic across the entire formation. But he showed in this game that, hey, he can take it from basically one spot where they know he's going to be and then still beat guys. That's a, that's a big deal. So I uh, definitely think he can continue it on. And, um, you know, definitely think he can continue it on this week. I, I think that's something that, uh, you know, for both the run and the pass, he'll, he'll be able to – he should be their biggest weapon going forward. And I think this week he can show that. Well, that's interesting you say that, Nick, because I feel like we talked about that weeks ago on this podcast about how the offense should run through Saquon Barkley with an aging veteran quarterback like Eli Manning. But it seems like they're finally starting to figure that out and, you know, how this scheme goes. Obviously, Barkley, remember, coming from Penn State, a completely different scheme, scheme, a shotgun scheme that they were in the shotgun every snap there at Penn State. And it was a very different scheme than the one he's in right now. Like we talked about in the past podcast, a lot more power runs, things of that nature. So he's picking up pretty fast to this new scheme under Sherman. You know, it's week 10 and we see him doing some of the things that a lot of the analysts were wondering if he could do at the next level. So I think that's obviously a positive sign. And you could have said it before, Nick. And if you don't want to, I can. I mean, what you were talking about before is greatest of all time. I mean, he has that kind of talent. There's no denying it. You watch this guy. You pointed it out in one of your pieces this week, Nick. His contact balance is off the charts. There, you know, there was a lot of fun runs by Barkley. He had the cutback across the field to the left side where he almost housed it. He had the run you were talking about just a few minutes earlier where he really did a good job of following his box and exploding through the hole. But then he had that run you highlighted on Twitter during the game, Nick, where he got stopped right behind the line of scrimmage, was able to keep his contact balance and basically transitioned into exploding up the field. And he took it for a first down. He, it was the play he kind of did that high hop where, you know, reporters ask him, why did you do that, like, Heisman-type hot move uh, 15 yards down the field? He's like, I was trying to set up and freeze the defenders. It's not a terrible move. It looks like it didn't work in that instant, but interesting, intriguing. But, that you know, that's kind of how I see it, Nick. And one last thing on this before we move on to the next po- uh, point. I will say that I may disagree with you on if I think he can repeat it this week against the Eagles front, but that's why I'm interested to hear from you because, you know, while this Eagles front has been struggling, they will get Timmy Jernigan back this week. I'm pretty sure he was just uh, removed or, you know, he was just reinstated from injured reserve to return to the lineup. Timmy Jernigan, really good interior run stopper. Um, but moving on, I think another key to this game, and obviously we'll touch on them all, but was the Evan, it's to me the Evan Ingram question. So Evan Ingram, 2017 first round pick, 17 snaps in week 12, 30, just 33% of the offensive snaps. Um, he came up huge on those snaps. He had two receptions, six yards. He had the 54-yarder to set up the game-winning touchdown. Uh, awesome play design. Awesome anticipation throw, in my opinion, by Eli Manning. Uh, and just, you know, great product of what a run game, running the ball 27 times over, uh, for 142 yards can do for a play at, for a passing game. But 
you know, again, he wasn't on the field for that much. So, Nick, I'm just trying to, you know, get it from you. What, What's the reason why you don't think he's – we know the reason. I shouldn't say what's the reason not playing. We know the reason he didn't play. He said it. Shermer said it. They wanted to get the run game going, and they needed – they felt like they needed Ellison and one tight end sets to help do that, and Ellison and Simon when they went to two tight end sets. I get that, but, you know, what's the long-term plan here in your mind for Ingram uh, at this point? Because, I mean, if you're drafting someone, like I said – First round with that high draft capital, he can't play 33% of the offensive snaps, right? Yeah, and I think that if you want to develop, first of all, players develop at all levels. It doesn't matter if you draft them the first round. It doesn't matter if you sign them even for like a lot of money. Guys are going to develop. They're going to regress. They're going to progress. They, they need to get better at all levels. He needs to get better at a lot of levels. And one thing that where that's not going to happen is if he's not going to block. Right. If he's not going to be out there consistently blocking, then he's not going to get better. So that's a kind of an interesting choice, especially in my opinion, when you're when you're now three and seven. Right. Like why, 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 why is he not there? And I think it's, you know, I think they did a good job of of keeping in the media where they're not going to basically say what's really going on. And, and no one's going to get Coach Sherman with truth serum, serum at the platform. So, you know who really knows if there's more to the story, but I think the other side of it, what what's on tape is that he's just not that consistent. Although he's a willing blocker, he's not a consistent blocker. I don't think he blocked terribly in the plays that he did, he, the running plays that he was involved in, in this game. Um, I just think that overall they, they want, they like the consistency that Ellison brings. I don't think Ellison is particularly that good in terms of where he's, or how much he's getting paid. Um, so I, I think it's kind of a funky mix where like, if you want to be multiple, you want to have guys that can be dual threats. If you're going to make him a singular threat and he's going to come, he's going to be reduced to basically a gadget level, um, not gadget level, but I'm saying like a, a specialty chess piece that you bring in occasionally. In my mind, that's a player that's cut out on his last stand before he gets cut or traded. Um, you know, it, that's just, it, there's really no other way to say it, especially for a young team that he's a young guy. Um, so I don't, I don't really get it. Um, but I see what they're, why they would be wary because of the tape. I don't see him getting cut, Nick. Um, well, right. But I'm just saying, meaning you, you're not going to, he's not going to be on the team, <laughs> you know, like that's get traded. But what I want to know, what I'm actually kind of trying to get at here, Nick, because you have mentioned before, you don't like his burst off the line of scrimmage. And you think he's slow into his routes. And, you know, once you started mentioning that, I started seeing it too. And it's not like I hadn't seen it before. It's that I never really focused on Evan Ingram because he hasn't been a big focal point of this offensive attack since he got here. I mean, he was last season almost by default because, you know, the Giants had no healthy wide receivers besides him basically by the end of the season. But what I'm wondering is, you know, is it possible you got, you draft a guy here that early and I understand, you know, that doesn't mean you're not going to trade him. doesn't mean you're going to have a plan for him in the future. Once a new head coach and a new GM comes in like Jerry, uh, you know, like Dave Gettleman and Pat Schumer did, but here's a guy with four, four, one speed. Natural six foot three and a half, bulked up to the weight he's at now. He's probably at about 240, 235. Ran, a, like I said, ran a 4'4", 140 yard dash, incredibly fast, 37 inch vertical, and good numbers across the board, really, from an athleticism standpoint. So, is it possible to transition a guy like this to wide receiver? And I know it sounds crazy, but if he, lo- if he cuts some of the muscle and the added bulk he put up to play inside a tight end, is he not a better blocker on the boundary? Is he not somebody who you can use eventually when you go to 11 personnel as more of your base every down personnel group? Because look at what the NFL teams are doing now, the best offenses, the Rams and the Chiefs. The best offenses have a great quarterback who can attack defenses out of 11. And, you know, I like how the Rams do it where they don't even – where they have two-way goes a lot of times with, with these receivers on the field because they line them in tight. 
Um, but what I'm what I'm trying to get at is, is is it possible? Is it you know is what is the te- you know is the, is he too far behind? I guess I should say from a technique standpoint to transition to wide receiver. No, I wouldn't say that. I think the issue there becomes why his what I think or what many would think why his get off is so slow for a guy that runs a four four. Uh, is that all of his speed is in the back end of his run. His third or fourth gear down the field is very fast, but his zero to, to 20 speed is slower. And what's really funny on the big reception, I actually, um, I broke that down for my piece that he, that he had, he has a, he's, he's running as an inline tight end against a linebacker that isn't covering, isn't, doesn't have much of a cover down on him, meaning that he's not heads up against him. He's, he's to the inside. And then the play action freezes him for half a second the linebacker that is and basically um ingram has a free release but what's funny is when you think with a guy at 4-4 speed why would you need even need play action for him to beat a linebacker and that says it all for the, for the player you know he's his his initial speed off the line of scrimmage from either um on in the line or in a two-point stance is just not that fast his ability to win early in the down is just not that fast so what i would say is if you want to put him outside then that actually Teams then are just going to basically jam him, so you're going to have, he's going to have he's going to have to be a slot receiver that you kind of have to scheme to get open. You know that's okay, um, and maybe that's where they go with him ultimately because again that that deeper speed is certainly there. I think his athleticism is certainly there, obviously, but the consistency in both his route running and his catching ability is not. And that was one thing that I was I was surprised this preseason when they were working him out at the lone X. Because he couldn't beat a lot of guys at the Lone X last year in in a, in, a, in more in simpler routes, but still, if he, he he really has not shown the ability to, to win in isolation. I don't think that gets easier on the outside. I think if anything, it's maybe a slot type thing, and sure, that could absolutely happen. Um, like I said, maybe that's where they go. I think that you know that means you kind of would compete with the wide receiver crew, and that's what he's basically doing now. What they told you that the last, in this last game is that Coleman and whoever else you want to insert at wide receiver three was a higher value for that specific game. Yeah. And not only were they then, you know, he was also saying the same about Scott Simonson in the two tight end sets because the giants wanted to get the run game going. And while all that's true, Nick, I do, you know, we did spend a lot of time prior to the season talking about how in Shermer's 2017 Vikings offense, he liked to take a lot of deep shots out of the slot. And while that hasn't been transparent or apparent in this 2018 giants offense, for a number of reasons, I think the main reason is the offensive line hasn't given them time to do it, and they don't have a quarterback who they can design bootlegs for, who can get out of the pocket, and things will open up on these vertical routes. Well, that all may be true. Um, you know, it's still something I think fundamentally they want to do, Nick, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong on that. So I still think there is a role for him in this offense based on that. Yeah, I definitely think there is. It's just it's just weird when you go up against a, a defense that's – it's another defense that's very technically unsound like you know that, that, that loses their assignment often and he's not a, a featured part of it even if you want to get the run game going and you mentioned how many times they ran 12 personnel so that that it was just confusing and one thing that you that you actually mentioned in the preseason that we haven't seen is him moving around the formation to where if you want to run 12 personnel with him starting off in the backfield like none of that has happened so right. And so that was definitely there in the preseason. There was chatter of that. Now, again, maybe that's smoke and mirrors for the, for the media to kind of keep them, to throw them bones during the day to keep them occupied. But I don't, you know, if you're not going to do that, and if he's not, if he's not going to, if he doesn't have a chance to, to develop into a Trey Burton, and then he's going to be just a deep threat, well, that's fun. It's totally fine. It's just, it's not, you know, 
the value is different there, I think, especially especially for Shermer. That's fair. I mean, I, I'm I'm still holding out hope, though, Nick. I think I'll, we'll agree to disagree just for the for the larger sake of this and move on to and move on to. But again, I don't want to say I'm all in because I agree with a lot of the larger points you made. But as far as trading or cutting, I'm not just there just yet. But again, we'll move on. We'll move on to a more positive topic here, and that's Corey Coleman, uh, the wide receiver. He was the former 15th overall pick of the 2016 NFL Draft. You know, couldn't latch on with his original team, the Browns, even though he was really productive on a person-at basis during his rookie season. All-field issues bothered him there in Buffalo and New England. He couldn't latch on. But in his time with the Giants, it's been quite the opposite. He was promoted to the active roster, immediately made an impact, gave the team a huge boost with a big kick return against the 49ers, caught his only target against the 49ers on a third and long where he made an excellent play to come back to the ball, ran a good route against the, again, on only eight offensive snaps against the 49ers this past week against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Once again, another good kick return, his speed. It's obvious his burst. It's obvious. And he only played five offensive snaps, but caught another pass on one of those five offensive snaps, the athleticism it's off the charts, 41 inch vertical, 437 speed, freaky lateral agility. Nick, what did you see there from, you know, the five snaps, I guess, and maybe the eight from the week before uh, from a route running standpoint that you that makes you think maybe he could latch on as a core player for this team moving forward? Yeah, he didn't really flash as much as just other than being very solid and seemingly shorthanded. So nothing like crazy yet, but something where it's, you know, did he definitely look quicker than say like a, not to single him out, but say like a Benny Fowler? Like, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that, I think it's a definite upgrade. Um, and no matter what happened on hard knocks this past season, you know, like players go through all different types of development and maturity and, you know, maybe he's at that point, maybe this, maybe an environment away from, uh, from Todd Haley was, was, is an uptick for him from a coordinator standpoint and a culture standpoint, you know, it's hard to really say. And, and, you know, just ultimately, you know, that, that he was kind of discarded by a lot of people and, and that is what it is. And so now you're trying to get what you can. And, and yeah, I definitely think that it's something that they need. They, the hope here, I think, is it becomes a real vertical threat because that would change the ball game for how um, OBJ is as a Z wide receiver, as in, or in the slot for that matter. Uh, for some way, if there's if the defense is something somewhere else other than worry about other than him from a coverage perspective, that's a really that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's certainly the long term upside there. I would agree with you 100 percent on that. But one thing I like about the Coleman edition, what I've seen from Coleman is after each game. Uh, you, you, you've heard it and he's name dropped him and he's only name dropped a few people in the last two wins. Eli is one of them. Barkley's another, but Odo Beckham Jr., you know, guy who's going to soon at some point, maybe possibly be a captain of this team. He's with the team for a while, signed to a massive contract, easily their best offensive player besides maybe Barkley, I guess at this point, hard to, we won't go into that, but each game he's name dropped Coleman after the game. You know, he's giving him a lot. What I like about that is that, so he name dropped him for his, the impact he made on both kick returns and how much it helped the offense. And in both times, he basically went into longer detail. He said it sparked them in the game against the 49ers when they needed it most for a touchdown drive. He, he talked about how you know difficult it is for the offense and how much it changes the play calling when you're backed up inside your own 25, your own 20, versus when he can when a you have a kick return who can take it out to the 35, 40, 45 yard line. So I like this because I think he's the type of player and type of personality player, Coleman that needs someone like Beckham to kind of step in as like an older brother figure, somebody who's ran routes, you know, who's done all this in the NFL so far, who's accomplished so much, who knows the right way to get paid. Because, I mean, that's what these guys really want in the end. And I don't blame them. It's their business. It's their life. It's their job. It's their career. They should want to. But 
I think it's so important for a player like him who's now on his fourth team, Corey Coleman, and obviously has the talent. So that's kind of something that really has stuck out to me so far, Nick. I don't know what you thought about that, but uh, you know, outside of the tape, the only thing that matters, the only that comes to mind is that you know he Landry is um, his boys with uh, his boys with OBJ, right? And they were Landry was his teammates with Coleman, so maybe there's some level of insight and connection there that like, hey, you know, it wasn't what this is, the scenario was and hard knocks or whatever, you know, like where he was able to speak highly of him or however, you know, or maybe he told him what what the mistakes the team made <laughs> with him to help him get to yeah. that. So I like that. yeah, so there definitely could be some level of connection there because again, these guys the NFL is a lot it runs a lot smaller circles I think that people realize and. And that's why that partially why guys like this kind of get almost ostracized. But the other way too is like once they get painted that way, it can be hard to turn the table without a guy like OBJ backing you up for sure. Yep, and I, I mean I know he gets a, lot, a bad rep from the meet from a lot of people in fan in this fan base and in the meeting and whatnot. But you know I I think there's some good reason. There's sometimes there's reason for it, but most of the time it's unwarranted. Um, that guy is so enthusiastic. I mean, how could you not like when he's good? It's like as good as it can get. Yeah, you know, who's, I, 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 he's 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 a little bit of a pain maybe to deal with when they're losing. But I mean, they were losing a lot of games. It sucks to lose. It's tough. It's tough to stay positive when you're losing. But we'll move on and we'll go to a review of Eli Manning. Feels like we have to do this every time he plays. Again, these could be his last games in a Giants uniform. We'll start with just the basics. Uh, something I found interesting just from talking to you a little bit before this, it looked like Nick, you actually liked what you saw, which is a surprise because it's very rare these days that you like what you see from Eli Manning from the quarterback position. And I'm not saying that you're, I'm not saying it in a bad way, just saying, you know, what we've gone over on these podcasts. So, and again, I've been with you a lot of times, so it's not like we're, we're standing in different corners there, but Nick, you, you talked about to me how it was kind of his best overall placement game in your opinion. Um, but what else, you know, what were some of the other reasons, what were some of the other things you like from Manning here? And obviously, before we before we dive into that, he went 17 of 18 for 231 yards passing, uh, over 12 yards per attempt, all really, really good numbers, the highest completion percentage of his career, and the best quarterback rating since uh, 2009 game, uh, I guess, what was that, wow, nine years ago against the Raiders. So what, what, what are some of the things you saw, Nick, when you look back? Yeah, definitely no. Uh, may, although people may try to twist things on Twitter, I have no axe to grind. I literally want to see. Good football. I'm just going totally <laughs> off of what we've talked about, <laughs> right? No, but so when he's good, he's good, and I think that's the thing, and that's what's kind of that. That's that's one reason why everyone, or not everyone, why many or those maybe that evaluate talent would be so critical of him at times because he shows the Jekyll and Hyde tendency. What I tweeted at one point, I was like, you know, if he, if he's Jekyll and Hyde, basically. Hyde went on vacation or took the week off because basically it was not, it was, it was virtually non-existent. He had a couple of slow reads. He had a couple of checkdowns, but besides that, all of a sudden he, what I found most interesting about the game was there was a couple of things. Number one, his placement was, was excellent at times as you know, really he couldn't have handed the ball any better to the receivers in some cases for some hard throws down the field, not, check down type stuff that people love to highlight like difficult throws so that was that was big the, the biggest thing that i like though and i didn't really think of this we probably should have thought thought of this for the last podcast tampa bay likes to play 2d but they don't really have an evolved too deep structure beyond that they don't play a lot of wrinkles of cover of quarters it's kind of just stale quarters but they play other things too like cover two just but nothing that crazy and he to be frank he he slaughtered it 
you know, like there, there really is no other way to say it. He, there was no fear. It was, well, I'm not saying he was fearful before, but there was, there, he was very in control and command of the offense, throwing the ball down the field. They had six plays, passing plays greater than 15 yards, and all of them are against two deep, against two deep looks. One of the plays that I broke down for my piece, he, um, one of the things that we had talked about in this podcast was how defensive coordinators like to screw with him after the snap. Well, one of, on the sale concept that he threw, I think it was in the third quarter. Um, there was a there was a cover three buzz rotation to the weak side that he read perfectly. Like as you as you want a great quarterback to do, and he put the ball exactly. He put the ball better on the spot than what than how Sterling Shepard ran his route. And so, like when you see stuff like that, like that hasn't yet that has not happened this year that much. So, although I, I you know to be frank, I don't care who the opponent is. It's still an NFL team that he just kind of beat up when he when he wanted to. And 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 I think they they need more of that. And again. You know the context is important that the team is not that good, but nevertheless, it doesn't really matter if, if for whatever they want to. It, I don't even think it matters for for going to like any level of a run this year. I think it matters for for adequate evaluation of the team that you have now. It's very hard if the offense doesn't work to judge your offensive line. Well, now you really can, you know, in games like this because it's like, hey, they perform well. So I think all this is good and needs more of it. And, and almost no matter if he's here next year or not, I think it's almost besides the point. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I think that, you know, anyone who says, okay, it was against the Buccaneers defense really is discrediting how hard it is to throw for 12, over 12 yards an attempt and complete 17 of 18 of the passes that you attempt. I mean, he was, and like you said, these weren't all easy throws. There was the throw you talking about the sale concept against the, where he hit Shepard on the sideline. This is a really tough ball that out. The throw that he made to Evan Ingram on the game winning drive. That's a really, really good call with anticipation. The Beckham throw, touchdown. Another good ball with anticipation, thrown with anticipation. And obviously the the big play action shot on the first drive was an excellent, excellent, excellent ball. This is a tough ball. The thing with people who want to replace Eli Manning, you know, uh, I just have to tell them, like, these balls aren't going to be guaranteed from Kyle Oletta next year. I'll tell you that. These balls aren't going to be guaranteed from Teddy Bridgewater next day, next year. I'll tell you that. There's a lot of quarterbacks who either won't read what you talked about, that cover three with the buzz, the, you know, with the, them trying to trick them, won't read it right, will throw an incompletion or an interception. There's guys who really just don't have the arm talent to make some of these throws that Eli Manning's making. Now, again, future-wise, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on this, he's still, I'm not sold that he's the best option for this team. There's still a lot of, you know, negative that you get when you have a quarterback who has no, you know, can't run the zone read option in an offense that runs so much zone running, uh, so, so much inside zone. So that's obviously a, a problem. He, you know, bad offensive line play, obviously it hurts him. But there's some reason to believe that, you know, it took him some time after four years, Ben McAdoo's offense, one that Nick has gone into good detail about and I've talked about as well, is pretty much very different conceptually than this Pat Shermer offense. There's reason to believe that it took him some time to get used to this offense, Pat Shermer's offense, what he does well in it, what he can do well in this offense, you know, things that plays that work, concepts that work, and maybe we're starting to see it. It's gonna there's gonna be a big test this week um, against the Philadelphia Eagles, and we're gonna dive into a little bit more. But I'll switch it over right now to somebody who stood out to me, Nick. Um, we didn't talk about them before this, but I just thought because I what I did is I went back and rewatched all of 27, 27 of Barkley's rushing attempts. I did want to kind of see what he was talking about with the pacing through the mesh, and you know who stood out to me. And you could tell me if you if I saw it wrong or what you saw. Nate Solder as a run blocker. I know we talked a lot about Solder last week and the week before about how you know he's much better on tape than his reputation would suggest uh, on Giants Twitter. But I think one of the really big aspects 
that, you know, one of the things I've noticed that I liked a lot about him, one of his big positives, is what he can do as a run blocker. He's really flexible. And he's really long. And that's something that actually Dave Gettleman talked about when he signed him. Did you? What did you see from Solder and just kind of the Giants' run blocking game in general? In general, it was uh, it was it was good. I don't think it was unreal or maybe. I mean, I guess it would have to be their best game just because of so many attempts and their and the yards and the YPC is so high. Um, but yeah, no, definitely his length and this ties into all this stuff. Kind of holistically, talk ties back into him as a pass blocker because as a pass blocker he's best when he's going out and, and and utilizing his strong his his first strike and his length it's very similar to run blocking in some cases yeah um so that that's where that in a base block against the inside zone against the wide seven it's going to kind of be that you know it's it's, it's not that dissimilar and that, or it ties into it a little bit um so that's definitely that's that's definitely the case there and i just think that you know they need to, he needs to kind of keep it going and I guess do it publicly to get the, to get to, to get people's opinions to turn on him. But that whole left side of the line, um, you know, including including even Pulley at times. Pulley, you know, with his play strength yeah, is still was solid. Yeah, it, his play strength is still an issue. But on the running side of the game, running side of the house, I, th- I thought he was I thought he was fine, and I thought Wheeler at times can flash. Wheeler is by far the weakest link now, really, and and it's really bad in pass pro. But on the run side, it's not it's not it, it's functional on, on the running side. Yeah. It's definitely functional. He's functional in the run game for sure, Wheeler. But, you know, that's somebody that 100%, in my opinion, cannot be starting next season on this offensive line. I don't even think it's a question um, based on, you know, what we just what you just mentioned, the pass peril. But we'll flip it over to the other side of the ball where things, to me, were not nearly as pretty. And we'll start it off with a new game here. Nick, I'm going to throw it to you. A lot of pressure here. What is Nick's take on the defensive failures? Because they gave up a shit ton of yards against the Bucks. They gave up points, touchdowns blown coverages you know is it for you well okay here's the game you give me in order what was most to blame for this loss uh, i don't know sorry, for the defensive failures coverage scheme or defensive pressure uh man the blame game the, the always of the blame game um i think you'd have to say execution and coverage went to crap at times like like really bad at times um, across the board, multiple people. I'm literally looking at my notes right now as you ask that question. I think the the whole thing holistically ties in with pressure and what the little that that not to say the little, but you know, there's only so many things that Betcher can do to each to try to equalize the pressure, and they did a pretty good job of that in the first half. They did not get enough credit for the it's they're not getting on the board sack wise, and I know that's the game, but the levels of times that they made Fitzpatrick uncomfortable, then he had to show that he was a pretty good scrambler, which he did at times, but other times he made mistakes. Um, so I thought the pressure was a little bit better. It did not show up at all in the second half, um, and that was a big deal. Um, but for like kind of why the defense kind of gave up a lot of plays, it's really just in some cases some bonehead miscues to when the tackling goes bad. They're very similar to the way the Eagles were last year. When the tackling goes bad, it's like <laughs> like no one can tackle, and the play goes for a big play. You know, I hate to single them out, but uh, Goodson had a really tough time in coverage, and so much so that I think that's why Tay Davis saw so many snaps. And you know, I don't think Tay Davis had a great game, but I think in coverage it was you saw Goodson with give up some chunk plays where he's just, he's, he's not, he wasn't assignment sound and you cannot be that way at this point in the season. Um, so that was not cool. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I chalk it up to coverage in, in a few different ways. Um, yeah. I think I'm with you. If I was giving it, I'd give coverage number one there too, from what I saw, just not 
what we got used to kind of when, you know, Betcher did a lot of really great work so far through the games before this in pass coverage, given the talent he has back there. But this is a defense that's, you know, it's very opportunistic in coverage. They were really close to at least two more interceptions than the three that they racked up. They're really close to a five interception game, as crazy as that sounds. It's really true. You know, there were good plays on the ball by Michael Thomas, by Curtis Riley. Um, obviously, the play by Janoris Jenkins and Alec Ogletree for the interception was really awesome. You broke it down, Nick. Um, so if you guys want to see more about that play, I would love that. I, I think it was one of the best breakdowns Nick's done, um, along with all his other ones. So ch- check that out. I believe you put that up in your piece, either on cover one, or was that just something you tweeted out? I think that was just a tweet. Yeah. Um, probably in gamer. Yeah, no, that, uh, yeah, there, there was, he played well there, but besides that, the rest of the game, there was some there were some whiffs, and that's what was kind of tr- tough for him right now. I think the yeah, corner, uh, Jen- Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, no, for no doubt, he's not playing his best football at all. And when the corners go bad in this, if you want to call it a system, I think that that's that's very hard because when if if you can, a lot of quarters, and that's what the Giants are really basing out of is nickel quarters right now, which is not at all what Betcher has done in the past. This guy has a lot of arrows in his quiver. What he's playing right now. If you um, your corners when they're either against a lone X wide receiver and a single wide receiver, or basically outside the numbers, if they have to go in a meg type of coverage, which is man, uh, man everywhere he goes, it's basically man. No matter what the call is, that corner is on man. If you can't lock that guy down or at least shut him out for the first two seconds, then you're gonna have a problem. And they and they kind of have a little bit of a problem there too. And it's not just Jenkins; it's Webb too. But you know, it's something where I think that's that investment needs to be made. I think this, uh, this, this off season. Yeah. And they're the cornerback is certainly a position of massive need on this team. This defense to me has a lot of needs. You talked about David Davis and Goodson struggling. They certainly did. And that they don't think, I mean, Goodson's a holdover from the Jerry Reeser. I don't think he's built in the mold that Gettleman, uh, you know, likes the linebacker position. He talked about this when he came over from Carolina, how the Panthers went. And when he was with them, they did something different and they figured out a different type of player. They like, uh, at the second level for the linebacker position. I don't think Goodson is it. Davis was probably more in that mold, but again, he's an undrafted rookie free agent. How much you know, <laughs> can't be certain that he's somebody who can stick on an NFL roster? He's certainly been thrust into a role where he has to play when Goodson has games like this one, but you know there may not be a long-term future there. But a couple other guys I want to talk about on the linebacker corps are actually on the outside. So we'll start with the good, and that's Lorenzo Cardu, who I thought should have been credited for at least a half a sack when he uh, made the pass rush that ended resulting resulted in a Kareem Martin sack, but that sack never haps, happens unless Carter gets around the edge and forces Fitzpatrick to step into the sack. So what did you see from Carter and what was pretty much his first NFL start? He played 42 snaps, which is a lot for him. And he was on the field in the first snap and he was uh, taken off for his special team duties. Yeah, he was, I think he I think he played well. I think that where his development stage is, is on that play that you mentioned, he kind of had a nice long-arm stab that he was able to kind of combo into a little bit of a rip move, which means you know, he's kind of evolving a little bit, but you're just not seeing that enough on a consistent basis. But that's still – it doesn't – you know, it's, he's still a young guy that, that's it's still his first season. So it's, it's cool to see those little baby steps, and that's what you're seeing every week from him. And some level on the pass rushing side is he's getting a little bit better. Can he give that for you? You know, is he doing that every down against against good against good tackles? No, uh, but that's that's part of the game. I think the, the issue is that all the other professionals that they have on the team are not really doing that as, as at all, and that's kind of been tough. But sticking with Carter for sure, I think that was you know something where his his overall versatility. He's really built for this. He's built for this defense, and um, I think that he's going to continue to get better. And his key in 
again, without getting super abstract into the, into the defensive end terms, his key is when he can get, when he can increase his bend where he can get comfortable with his legs going more and more parallel to basically the ground and turning that edge and getting his feet par- uh, perpendicular to or parallel to the line of scrimmage, perpendicular to the quarterback's line at that point. When he can start doing that consistently, that guy's going to be dangerous. And so that's just uh, it's kind of a countdown to then, I think. I think he can definitely get there, and I think that, you know, another good another good step this week. No doubt. And then on the other side, uh, the bad side of things, there's Olivier Vernon who made his return against the Eagles earlier this season, didn't play a full complement snap, really hasn't played a full complement snap. He's not being used how Spags used him. He played 55, I believe, or 53 against the Bucks, which wasn't, you know, which was, I believe, in the 80 percentile, between 80 and 85 percent. But where's the impact from him? I mean, he's not going against an elite left tackle or right tackle when he's lined up on that side uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers by any measure. Um and, you know, there's just – he's just not making it – he's been back now for quite some time, appears to be over the high ankle sprain. I mean, how much longer could they have possibly given him for a high ankle sprain? Maybe another week or two. He had about – I believe it was either six or seven weeks after the injury uh, to recover from the high ankle sprain. Obviously, it was an injury that limited him last year. He wasn't good last year at all. A lot of, a lot of the blame I gave was on him playing through a high ankle, but who knows. And now this year, he's not playing well either. So – what are you seeing from Vernon um, as far as, you know, why is he not making more of an impact? Just one thing quickly. I did do, I did study Donald Penn last year for the scouting Academy. He was unrecognizable in this game from where he was last year. He looked a lot better. He, it might, I mean, I haven't watched him much for the rest of this year. So like part of it has to be attributed to that because he had a great game against all types of blitzers. Riley had a blitz on him and Riley couldn't get past him from a speed perspective. I was like, I thought it was like seeing, I thought it was dreaming or something. Um, Anyway, uh, for OV, yeah, he flashes like one out of six plays, and flashes is a is a is a good is like a is way over you know exaggerating the word. It, it, it's not. He he occasionally has a good bull rush. I'm not seeing a lot of use of hands or good use of hands. I'm not seeing him kind of explosive with an inside move after an outside step. So he's kind of just I don't know. It's 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 like something's missing for him, and I don't know what it is. Um, it's tough. It's really tough because they really need him. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, right now, um, not to kind of just take it in a more positive way, but Mario Edwards is the best rusher they have, the most consistent pass rusher. That's a problem. And so for OV not to be that guy, uh, you know, why I think, I don't know. I just, it's not happening, whether he's still injured, whether it's just, it's just not clicking for him in here, or he wants to do something different in terms of positioning. I don't know. They move around on both sides of the formation. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know, but it's, it's not, it's not where it needs to be. Yeah, and I think we actually have broken the record for the most Mario Edwards references on a giant <laughs> podcast, at least in 2018. Obviously, wasn't on the team before this. Um, maybe some people liked him in the draft that were doing. Giant you know what I'm talking about? His motor is legit. Yeah. He actually gets home sometimes. Tell me, I'm a Mario Edwards fan. Well, Mario Edwards, you can mark that down. But you know, the, oh, back to the OV thing. It's really it's, the Giants are in a really, really, really bad spot about OV. People talk about Eli all they want. But if the Giants want to, they can cut him next this offseason and recoup $17 million of his $23 million cap it. With OV, there ain't no cutting them. I mean, they could, but it's a massive dead cap it. They're not going to recoup most of the money. They will recoup, I think, believe, a small majority of the money. But, you know, he's a $19.5 million salary cap hit this next season, OV, at, in 2019. 
And that's the type of contract that really bloats down your roster and really hurts you. It just really does. It's all, you know, when he's playing like this, it, it really does hurt. So I don't know what they'll do about that. I know they tried to trade him at the deadline and there were no takers. So I don't think they're going to find any taker for his contract this offseason either, uh, especially if, like you said, Nick, you know, if he continues to put on tape what we've seen so far. Um, but another guy who did impress me on the positive side was Josh Morrow. Uh, he earned a really po- a strong grade from pro football folks for the second week in a row with his run defense. But I also, you know, I personally also see it on these run plays. I mean, he's making plays, he's getting penetration, and he's doing a really good job there. So I think Morrow, we talked about it last podcast. We don't have to go crazy on it here. But I think Morrow and Edwards are certainly possibilities to be a part of this defensive line in 2019. What do you think on those guys? Yeah, definitely for or definitely the way Morrow's played in the last two games. On the Riley interception, he had a great bull rush that I don't know if it caused uh, Fitzpatrick to throw the, you know, like the kind of crap throw that he threw <laughs> that got him basically pulled. But, you know, it was he was definitely in his face. And so saw that a few times, saw it in the run game, just like you're saying. And, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think that it's he's, – he, he's versatile too and then he can play three-tech, but he can play five-tech in base, which is, you know, I don't – think they really want Hill to do that and I think that actually this isn't on our plan but actually that was something that they did not have a good game um Hill and Tomlinson and that is something where this with this game really stuck out to me and I should have should have emailed to you in our pre-show planning but uh that was that that was that hurt this was the first game that I saw where um where uh where you really miss snacks they gave you know basically Peyton Barber had a great game whenever he wanted to kind of ran out and so that was kind of an issue. And that was kind of scary because it was both players, both players getting against double teams and, you know, giving too much ground in that type of thing. So, you know, Morrow stood, stood out in base and, and, and certainly Tampa Bay played 12 personnel a lot. So the Giants were in base a fair amount. Um, and, and those other two guys did not. Yeah. I mean, and then it comes back to what you said, you know, is a fifth round pick worth losing snacks at one and, you know, when they were at, when they traded him, it certainly looked like it. And, with this Panthers loss, this stupid Panthers loss they had earlier this season from a kicker who kicks a 63-yard career high after literally – and last week in, uh, against the Lions, he misses an extra point and a chip shot field goal in a dome. But, you know, that really changed – that started up with Tom with uh, Harrison. And like you said, there has been a noticeable dip there in the run defense without him. But moving on a little bit just to the – to the secondary, there were splash plays. While the coverage wasn't good overall, there were splash plays. Michael Thomas, he doesn't play much, but now he's playing a lot more in the second half after the bye week. And he made a really good play on the interception, I thought. Um, Riley, like you said, the ball was kind of thrown up to him. But, you know, do you think that, you know, maybe they're starting to to realize Michael Thomas could be more of an asset than just a special teams captain? Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's kind of – when they go to big nickel, and big nickel is three safeties – they do that against 21 personnel. They did a little bit against 12 uh, personnel. So when teams mix in, um, they it's a good kind of wrinkle. Or they did it against 11, I think, a couple of times too, against the normal the normal sub package, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, no, I think he's versatile. The, uh, again, the key thing that I've actually thrown out a few times on Twitter is how they definitely all move around. Collins plays most of the time around line of scrimmage. He plays defensive end, quasi-defensive end sometimes. But um, – uh, Thomas plays up top in deep safety. They had Riley down around the line of scrimmage a few times, and that type of thing, that overall versatility, that multiplicity, that's that's that fits in that mold. And that's that's why preseason, I really did think that this that that he was going to be kind of the better option. I'm a little surprised that they, they didn't use him right off the bat in the slot right away, just because he has that flexibility. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting too is when when they run formations, um, when the, when the offense runs the formations where there's twins, 
uh, two wide receivers to one side and let's say it's 12 personnel so there's two tight ends overloaded on the other side they actually put the two corners because the court because uh webb and both webb and jenkins too have experience in the slot so they put the corners on one side they actually put um either thomas or collins as the corner on the other side so it's kind of interesting like little wrinkle that the announcers aren't really talking about but again that overall versatility that's who bet that's what Betcher wants. He wants those guys that can play multiple things, multiple positions and and do it at ease and do it and do it just good enough at, at all different spots for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And if you look at at least pro football folks, you can take their grades for what you want. Um, but if you look at what they're saying, they they have him as the highest graded defensive player in the Giants last game. And he, you know, has earned a really, really, really great coverage rate from them in his two last two games with the Giants. So People were talking earlier this season about releasing him so they can guarantee they get a comp pick. Instead, they decided to release Patrick Omame to get guarantee that same comp pick they would have got releasing maybe Thomas and I believe it was Cody Latimer. Um, so I think they made the right decision there. He'll be signed under contract pretty cheap for the 2019 season. In addition to what he offers on special teams, we now know we can offer someone on defense. But let's move on to a preview of this Eagles game, a really interesting game now out of nowhere. Giants three and seven, extremely unlikely they make a run for the playoffs, but not, not, not impossible in the NFC East, especially with Alex Smith on the division leading Redskins now done for the season. Um, but it would have to start with a win against the Eagles, a team who is reeling. You do a lot more work on the Eagles than I do, Nick. I'm not going to lie about it. I do not watch their all twenty-two. I didn't watch this game. Um, this is the one game I might I might do it for. Obviously, a little bit later in the week during that Thanksgiving run when we have some time. And family and whatnot, and I don't want to talk about politics. Not just kidding, but uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, but I am. I don't think the Giants are going to win this game for starters, and my reason is that I think that advantage the Eagles have on the defensive front, especially with the addition of Jernigan now to the lineup, um, is going to prevent the Giants, like it has in at times this season, including the first game against the Eagles, of taking advantage of this beat up secondary. We saw it against the Saints. Um, why did you talk a little bit earlier about you? Why you have some confidence? So, what what is your confidence come from? Uh, confidence in the Giants' running game. Um, we'll stick with that for a second. <laughs> yeah, just because they're the Eagles are getting Jernigan back. Um, but overall, what's what I think is interesting is I think that their linebacking group has not been nearly as good as they have been in the past. Yeah. And I, I'm high on guys like Matt Jordan Hicks is out, by the way, for this game. Right. And that's a big deal. And I'm, and I'm a big Nigel Bradham guy. I didn't write a piece last year that I should have. I was like massively short him last year, got run over. And now just kind of like <laughs> understand he's a very good player, but he's, he's not, he's not playing that great. And overall, I think that Barkley, and if you use Barkley in a multitude of ways, maybe 20, 15, 20 carries and 10 targets, I don't think they have this, this team right now has to play zone. And whenever a team becomes one-dimensional, something's got to give. And I don't think it's going to be – the- Are you saying? Yeah, they ha- they have to play zone. They can't – Against what Schwartz wants to do, though, doesn't it, for the most part? it's Schwartz is a little more multiple than people realize, um, especially this year. He was running a fair amount of blitzes, which is very un- unreal for him, and a fair amount of man blitzes. Um, but this group, when I say they don't want to play zone, I think they have to play cover three zone, like cover three period zone. And they need they needed a week of practice to get everyone up to speed. If you look at the people that they have, like, you know, it's it's basically practice squad players in some points at some points. So I, I think that if you have that, it can make it can make it very difficult um, to defend against the run, especially if the Giants can basically get Barkley going. And again, I know people would immediately think that zone running means or 
running against the zone means that the players are going to be keyed in on Barkley. I think that's a good thing because I think the little bit of misdirection that the Giants could add to this would actually have a big deal where if you get him to the second level, I think he's kind of gone against this team and, and on, on, on the passing front too. Um, so I think that's what you'll, I think that's what you'll see. You saw from Barkley last week, um, a couple more choice routes or, or what would be referred to as RB running back option routes where he can either run the angle route or run the odd, the out, out route, depending on what the defender's doing. I think you're going to see a little bit of that and that against zone, I think it's not necessarily like, you know, the ultimate death, but I think it's going to be something that where they can move the ball that way through him. And if they stick that way, I, I kind of like it where I'm worried. I'm more worried about the pass rush against the offensive line. Yeah, that's what that's. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And and that's and that's the that's another question that I don't you know <laughs> I think that's going to be tough. Um, but I think the the if you, if it sticks through Barkley, it's a lower scoring game. I think they can win this one. Yeah, I mean, again, Michael Bennett versus Chad Wheeler and those snaps—that's a nightmare. Pretty much any of those Eagles ends against Wheeler is a nightmare. Wheeler, not not my cup of tea at right tackle, but but I kind of you know you you had me come around a little bit here, Nick. I think I think with the injuries at the second level that the Eagles are, expo- are experiencing. And like you said, Barkley did take advantage of get once he got to that second level against the Eagles in that first game. He had an unbelievable game. We remember that. They took advantage of them in the screen game with that big play. They took advantage of it with a couple big runs. But to me, this is a game you can tell me, and I said about the first one, I think it's more of a game where you go more up-tempo and you go with a little bit of a spread attack. You get Evan Ingram playing a lot of snaps. Take a page out of the Ben McAdoo playbook, which sounds crazy, and you do a quick passing spread up tempo attack. Um, getting Barkley in space when you can get linebackers running from eleven a little bit more or twelve with Ingram lined up in the slot as basically a receiver. Um, what do you think about that? The only issue is is the Giants mixed in the most amount of personnel groups this week, right? Yep. Um, and so that was kind of interesting. So, but if you run tempo, that goes out the window for those drives. Right. It definitely does. Yeah. And so that's the only thing. So then it becomes, what do you think about the the Eagles nickel, what you could press them to be in because all their secondary, because their secondary is that. Yep. I'm saying take advantage of the fact that the Eagles might go into this game without a single quarterback, cornerback, I'm sorry, active, who was active in week two, like eight or six. I think it was four weeks ago. So. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other big thing that'll that'll come out during all this when you're just thinking about the passing game is what stopped the Giants the last time was how many was how many were they the way they were able to use cloud coverage against Odell Beckham. Yep. You know, can they do that? I mean, they're gonna have to do that because they're not gonna leave him they're not gonna leave him in single coverage. Um and what that does for guys like guys like Coleman on the on the other side, if that if they want to go that route. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of opportunities. I, I think that like we said, it's just it, it, if Eli needs time. And Eli needs – if Eli wants a static defense, he's not going to get as much of that with this. The defense will constantly be moving around on the secondary side. So I am, I am worried there uh, for that part of it. But from a matchup perspective, the Giants don't have to worry. I mean, they're – Barkley and and, and, um, and OBJ are – there's no one that can match up on, on the other side of the ball, in my opinion, for that, for those two guys. Yeah, I mean, and you brought up a good point right there, Nick, that I wasn't even thinking about. If there's going to be a game to give that Lorenzo Carter like bump and snaps to the other side of the ball with Corey Coleman, it's this game because, like we saw in that first game, there are a lot of opportunities for Cody Latimer on that outside. And you just brought it up, especially if they're going to use that cloud coverage again on Odell Beckham Jr. So this is a game I'd like to see them transition away from Benny Fowler, who's still playing more than double the snaps, triple the offensive snaps since Corey Coleman, and just give them to Coleman. <laughs> Honestly, it's time. I know he might make some mistakes. But I think his big plays will outweigh them, just how I how I view it. Um, and 
moving on a bit from that, uh, just to another point you brought up, Nick, that I thought was really interesting was that they started to use a little bit more motion last week. They used it on the reverse, the Beckham, really excellent play design. Um, so, like you said, I'm hoping that is used again against the Eagles. I think it's a really good way to attack this injured defense. Um, but on that note, Nick, I did want to flip it over a little bit to the other side of the ball and kind of ask you, because I know you've done a lot of work on this team, why are the Eagles struggling so much on the offensive side of the ball? I mean, Carson Wentz last week had 156 yards passing despite playing pretty much the entire game in garbage time where the Saints were obviously playing a different style of defense. And even if they weren't, I mean, they were up by such a big score. It'll take its toll. And not only that, he threw three interceptions. So why are they struggling so much? And is there any way for the current group of players on this Giants defense, and we know there are a ton of talent holes on this Giants defense, to be honest, is there any way for them to gain an advantage in this matchup? Yeah, it's weird. They, uh, they really played. I mean, this is the worst game that they've had in a long time from a, from a fundamental perspective. And I think that almost makes them dangerous this game because, like, you never want to play the team that just that just lost by forty plus points. Um, that's kind of a problem. But I think that for Wentz, it's many things. For Wentz in the offensive line, it's many things. It's it's a great. Most of their offensive line is banged up, and they have not protected him well. He has made poor decisions where he is not in the past. And a lot of it has to do with holding on to the ball too long, which in my opinion is kind of like a good thing because he can really extend the play. But when he's gone wrong, he's gone wrong. Ultimately though, I think that this is, they've, they've started very poorly in games. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of pushed itself over into a lot of other things where all of a sudden they're playing from behind. They're quite frankly, they're not as weird as it sounds. They don't have the talent to play from behind um, at this point in time. Uh, especially without the run, the rushing attack is solid, but it's not it's not what it was in the past, and they're not just statistically or in in the level of schemes that they're showing. They're kind of limited in what they do. Um, so for what the Giants can do on that side, I think that I think that they're going to take it. They can take advantage of the tackles. We talked about Ovi. If he if he, I think if he kind of like you know wants to kind of get himself back in the game, have the game that he had in Week Six, that's going to be really important. I think that if the Giants continue to run as many zone blitzes as they have run. Um, they have to hit home. They did not hit home last week. The, the Giants are blitzing a little bit more than people realize, and maybe they're doing it with only four rushers, which is not a, a blitz by many people's statistics. So it, it's what's called some people call it a zone exchange, where one guy alignment's coming off and, a, and another rusher's coming in, but only four are, are going in. Whenever they do anything like that, they have to hit home. Um, I think Betcher's Betcher's mantra is to basically throw as many different things at the at the offense that he can i think he will continue to do that here i don't think they have to worry as much about a deep threat which is a little interesting um for this eagle team so i think that the the one-on-one matchups against Ertz and specifically against golden tate um for on the shorter side of the house is going to be the way that they can kind of help that they can help themselves. And I think they're, they're in a stand okay in terms of what the coverage is that they're doing to keep them off balance. I think the question is, can they hold out those big plays that, that lead to sustained drives like the Eagles showed two weeks ago, even though they didn't win the game, that third quarter they had against Dallas, they were, they were awesome. And so I think it's, it's just, it's, it's keeping that in the, in the, in the closet versus letting it come out when they, when they roll, they roll. So I guess it's, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's keeping on doing the same thing, uh, but just throwing in as, as much as you can in the mix. Sounds good. And we'll find out this Sunday, but on that note, Nick, let's dive into some of the listener questions. We'll start with Peter who asks fans are crediting Jamon Brown as the reason for the improved run game. How much of it is actually Barkley running? more inside and not bouncing everything outside. 
Yeah, we. Uh, it's weird. I, my Brown grades are not as. I think he's played well, but I don't think he's played as good as he can. Um, I think it's like his second game in the preseason, um, which means I think he's even going to get better. Um, and I think it's. I think it would be a lot. I think it would be when they say bouncing more outside. I think it's more about can he follow his keys on and run within the structure. So it's whether that goes inside or outside is kind of just it's just staying within that structure, then knowing when to bounce or knowing when to explode north is that that's where that's that's what he's honing better as a skill. Um, and then so I would actually say that's the bigger thing than than Brown. Um, although he's been solid, he's been Brock solid for sure. Yeah, and we touched on this a bunch earlier in the podcast too. So I'll move on to the next one. But Benji asks. Have the Giants found their identity as a team? Mm, in the running game, I would still say, believe it or not, no. Even though they just had the best their best game, I think they want to do more from a multiple from running more schemes, and we'll see if that actually happens. Um, on the defensive side, I thought they were gaining traction to that, but I don't. I think that's a really tough game for them to swallow uh, in the second half there. So I think it's still a work in progress. And I'll say that. I'll give you your answer, Benji, after this game. Because if the Giants can find a way to run the ball successfully against this Eagles front, it means they're starting to find their own identity and they're starting to dictate what they want to do to opposing defenses. And they'll get those shots off the play-action pass like they did last week. I do believe that they'll get those shots versus – I mean, obviously, Eagles secondary sucks. But they'll get those shots versus a lot of pass defenses that they can run the ball successfully. And to me, that would at least mean they found their identity on the offensive side of the ball. I personally don't think they're going to be able to find their identity – on the defensive side of the ball, when Mario Edwards is, like Nick said, basically the most consistent pass rusher. I mean, uh, you know, Carter's also contributing a bit in that regard, and, you know, Vernon's all right. But the point is, when you don't have a big-time pass rusher and you have the deficiencies we've talked about in pass coverage and on the second level, there's just not much to me, you know, that that Betra can do. Um, but Giants Dreaming, uh, moving on to the next one, Giants Dreaming asks, if Eli Manning is willing to restructure his contract, would you keep him not knowing what's in the future or just cut him? Um, I'm not sure how that would work out. I, I, I'm leaning to no to kind of whatever, whatever the alternatives are for, you know, for one more, for one more year. Um, yeah. I mean, he's not going to restructure is different than a pay cut. So if he restructures, that means he'll kick, uh, I guess he'll kick the remain. I, I, I think he only has either has one or two years remaining on his contract. Is the next year, the last year, I believe, or, is there one more after that? I'm actually not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think it's. I think it's really hard. I should know that, but I mean, let's just break it down from another standpoint here. Then he he would have to most likely take a pay cut if if you know a restructure is different than a pay cut, and it doesn't help the team from the salary cap stand, standpoint to the point where they need. So let's throw that out for a second and say he would have to take a pay cut. And looking at it now, he is at next, next season is actually the last season on his contract. Like I originally thought. So there is no restructure. It would have to be a pay cut. So judging off what I've seen from Payton and Eli over their careers, I don't even think a pay cut is in the question for either of these two guys. I just don't think that's how the Mannings operate. Um, I hope they, you know, or not, I hope, but they might prove me wrong. But for me, Nick, I'm a little different. I think if he was willing to take a massive pay cut and get paid in the range of what they would pay somebody like Tyrod Taylor or Joe Flacco, who I think sucks, or Brian Fitzpatrick, who I think sucks, if those are your options and you really don't feel like Kyle Oletta can give you anything more than two or three or four wins, and, you know, guess what? There's no guarantee that the Giants feel like Kyle Oletta can give them wins. Who knows that Kyle Oletta is going to read the buzz cover, the buzz cover three, whatever that Nick was talking about earlier, make these these outside stick throws and have the kind of 
arm talent to make those throws on the outside and not be somebody who's limited as a quarterback and limited, you know, as a, at the most important position, we don't know that. So if their decision is that they're going to need a veteran to be the most likely starter, um, I'm not sure that I would take any of those guys, including Carr. You can throw him in there at, you know, 10 million over Eli at 10 million or 9 million or 8 million or whatever. But again, I do think it's kind of a moot point because I'm, I think it's highly unlikely that Eli takes a pay cut. Um, but we'll move on. Um, Peter asked, do you think the O-line has drastically improved or is it fool's gold? They did give up four sacks last game. Uh, I think that there's a good amount of improvement. Um, yeah, I think, I think Solder's gotten better, even though his stats in the last five or six games, like he gave up sacks during those, but I think he was, I think he was better. And I think they've been shifting to him, you know, letting him jump set or quick set guys more. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's drastically, I think it gets into, into a, you know, the, the, the degree of how much it got better. I, I think it's definitely improved and it's looking to get better. And, you know, I, I wouldn't look up sacks as the number, as the overall number. It's it's more the level of pressures and how many times Manning is, like, ready to deliver a ball to an open guy and he just can't, you know, and that's – and that, and you didn't see it. You haven't seen a lot of that in really three weeks. Yeah, I'm with Nick. I think there has been a good amount of improvement. Al asks, how hard will it be to re-sign Jamon Brown, who is an unrestricted free agent? Um, I'll answer that one real quick, and you could jump in, Nick, if you have anything more on that. Um I know sometimes I know the contracts aren't exactly what you dive into, but I don't think it's going to be extremely hard. But I mean, it's not going to be easy. This is how it works. They can't lowball him because that's what they did with Fluker. And, you know, or maybe that's not what they did with Fluker. Maybe they passed on from Fluker. But you just, when you have a guy you have to re sign, you have to give him a decent contract. And he's going to want a three or four year deal. It's really hard to re sign these guys to one year deals unless they get zero interest on the open market. If they get any interest on the open market, they're going to take a multi-year deal over a one-year deal. So I don't think it's going to be super hard. The Giants are going to have a lot of salary cap space, but it just depends on if they decide to move on or keep Eli. If they keep Eli at his current cap hit, plus they either franchise tag or re-sign Landon Collins, they're going to have only you know 25, maybe 30 million in cap space after releasing some other guys that they can do to cut down on the roster. So then it gets a little tougher, um, especially if they want to go out and sign a right tackle like Daryl Williams from the Carolina Panthers. And I think they will want to go out and sign right tackle Daryl Williams, um, considering one, Carolina Panthers have a ton of money invested in their offensive line and might make the decision, especially with a young player like Taylor Moden on the on the payroll for cheap, that they that they don't want to invest big money in another tackle. Or, you know, he just – and and if that's the case, I do think the Giants will want to make a play for him. He was one of the best right tackles in the NFL last season. So I'm going to put the ch- – you know, I'm going to say it's going to be hard, but not that hard. Um, Nick, you have anything else there on Brown? No, I think that they're going to want to. And I think it's just the bigger part is that he can – the, on the football side of the house, it's just the fact that he's here and you know what you, know what you right. have is, is a big deal. And that probably means a big deal literally money-wise for him. Yeah, and Fluker was obviously here last year, but he wasn't here when Gettleman was here. And obviously Gettleman looked at his tape and whatnot, but you know, maybe he just didn't think he was a fit for the type of blocking scheme the Giants really want to eventually get to in their own game or whatnot. Um, Benji also asks, if we somehow run the table, go 9-7, and seven, do you think they keep Eli for another year? Or does the money we save by letting him go make too much sense? <laughs> Yeah, we said that what two podcasts ago. That's the problem. Like, what if, what if, like, all of a sudden, like, if he goes on a run, then then it's like a problem. Um, I, I I think it's at the point where it's. I think Dan, you've kind of alluded to this a couple of times. If you're not trying to take away anything from a, from a Hall of Famer's, in my opinion, career, 
but he's not playing up to the this the 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 echelons of those and their aging. He's not as good as Breeze or Brady for guys that old getting that amount of money. And so it's, it's hard to have that comp, but that his compensation is that level. So at that point, I, I, I don't know. I think it's really, I think it's really hard, especially for a young coaching staff that I, again, I still think, you know, young meaning they've only worked together for a little bit for one year. The, you know, these guys want, these, these guys want to, you know, they, I think they want a new, a, a new quarterback there in that sense. So I, I just think it's, I think it's not possible. Yeah, I don't think it's not possible, personally, Nick. I, got, I think I've gone over it. I think, basically, if you don't like what you have a chance at in this 2019 NFL draft class from a quarterback standpoint, again, the ultimate goal, I think, for all of these coaches, I don't think anyone's stupid enough to not see the advantage of having a rookie quarterback playing at a high level on his rookie contract. I think everyone has seen what these teams in the NFL have done with it. The Chiefs, the Rams, the Eagles, uh, the Seahawks during Russell Wilson's first contract. It goes on and on. Um, so I don't think they're that stupid, but – if they don't, you know, if they if they feel like Justin Herbert is going to the Raiders and it's a foregone conclusion, and I think that's what's going to end up happening personally um, with that number one pick that the Raiders will have, or even if they have the two and Arizona is the one, um, you know, or, you know, if that's not the case and they do want to trade up for him, that changes a lot if they want to trade the house for Herbert. But if, you know, if they don't feel confident about just or a Will Greer, who I don't, I haven't seen enough of yet. Daniel Jones, who I'm not a huge fan of from what I've seen, but I also haven't seen enough. Haskins, who I've seen a good amount of, don't like that much. I mean, if they don't feel confident about Drew Locke, they don't like these guys, there is a 2020 class coming with Tua. You know, there is a 2020 class coming maybe with Trevor Lawrence. I actually believe Lawrence might be 2021, actually. But there are other prospects from in 2020. There are guys that they might like more in the 2020 class. Because guess what? They're scouting all these guys. They have so many guys doing this. They have area scouts. They're watching from. They're watching Trevor Lawrence. They're watching Tua. So it's not just like they're – if that's the case and they don't want to draft a quarterback, it's interesting to – it'll be interesting to see if they decide to go with Loletta and somebody like a Fitzpatrick, I guess, or a Cut Flacco for cheap. But, I mean, again, like I said, for me it just comes down to what the price of these veterans cost. If I have to pay 6 or $7 million for Tyrod Taylor – or Eli's willing to take a pay cut at ten million. It's different than Eli at nineteen and a half, or Tyrod at eight, whatever it would be. So, or Teddy for that matter. Any of these guys really. Teddy's the only one with a little bit. I would think of upside, at least in my mind, um, from what I've seen in this market. So, it's a really tricky thing, um, Nick. Uh, and I just, it really to me is just going to depend on where they see Loletta, I think, in his development. But I think you do bring up a good point. It's not. We're not certain that Eli is this type of quarterback that. Pat Shermer wants for his scheme. Um, and that might be what it comes down to in the end. Um, anyway, Stan asks, is there a scenario where Manning starts every game and then isn't cut in the offseason? I guess we just kind of went over that. But he says, I'm not a, certain there's a foregone conclusion that he's done with the Giants this season. Um, and then also talks about, you know, how will – is there a chance we don't see Kyle Oletta down the stretch? Or, or I actually, this is not from Stan. I saw another one because we just touched on that question, Stan. But another question I forgot to write down who, who asked this one, but now I remember seeing it, um, was that when the Giants are mathematically, mathematically eliminated, will they bring in Kyle Oletta? Um, so where do, you, where do you see that one, Nick? I, I think you have to. Um, yeah. But even if you don't think he's ready, you know, it's like one of those That's things. Like, right. It's like just you, you. You just have to. I think, and then on, on that side of it too. I mean, I think, I guess, at some level, Tanny too. But it's just one of those things. I just think that I still think that they're going to want to win as many games as possible. 
so if they thought Eli was that way, that that that, that was the best way to go because they're going to want to win games. But I don't know. I I don't. You know, I I think you have to do it just to just so you can at least have a better put yourself in a better position than you did last year where you didn't have that and it was a wild card and you end up going through part of camp with with uh, with Davis Webb. So right. just, and just not wanting to again, he doesn't have to play every game effectively, but it's like you just you need, you need some level of, of judgment to see in in actual you know against the NFL players versus practicing guys. So I think that's it's a big deal for sure. Yeah, we can't always hear that note about how he's not ready because you know Nick Mullins is getting into games. There's cases where you get thrown into the fire, and it it will be good to see what he what he has and what he can do, and it'll help them make a more informed decision. So I think. I would agree with you, Nick. Once they are officially eliminated from the playoffs, they should turn to Kyle Loletta um, at, the, at the quarterback position. So on that note, we're going to throw it uh, – we're going to end it there, Nick. Um, before we move on, let's talk about where we can find all of our work. I'll start by saying if you do enjoy the podcast, please, please help us grow this thing. Um, head to iTunes if you have an Apple device and give us a review. Uh, hit subscribe. That's important. apparently as important as downloads, downloading each episode is apparently extremely important as well for the iTunes algorithm. And if not, just help us out uh, by promoting our work maybe to your friends, your family, social media, anything like that is much appreciated. You can find all of my work by downloading the CBS Sports app on your phone, clicking Giants is your favorite team, hit notifications. I promise you only get notifications on the biggest news, but everything else will that I that I write will be on there as well. Um, and you can also find my work on Giants at 247sports.com. Nick, where can we find all your work? Um, I am at uh, the Giants X's and O's guys at uh, guy at cover1.net. Um, my Twitter handle teammanic21. That's where I post most most things. I'm in the Giants message boards, Big Blue Huddle, stuff like that as well. I'm also uh, at Inside the Pylon on like a bi-monthly basis for X's and O's articles. Awesome stuff. And then obviously on Twitter, you'll find me at Dan Schneier, NFL, D-A-N-S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R-E-N-E-I-E-R, NFL, and you can find Nick at tmanic21, uh, T-M-A-N-I-C-21. I think I got that right. Um, anyway, guys, thanks again for tuning in, guys and girls. I really do appreciate it. We, we love doing this. We love hearing from you guys on Twitter as well, uh, thoughts on the show and everything like that. So always feel free to send feedback, ask more questions. We will we will answer every question, as Benji learned on today's podcast, when we answered all three of his. Um, but on that note, guys, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving with your families. And uh, – Go Giants this Sunday because there's going to be nothing better than knocking the Eagles completely out of playoff contention. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.